this is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the Nation Tsunami podcast. This weekend, we are offering five conversations from Season 3, Episode 50, our discussion with representatives of the patient and patient advocacy communities, plus from the vault, my interview earlier in the year with biohacker par excellence and best-selling author, Dr. Marcus Rani. I start this conversation talking about FIB4 as an excellent frontline tool for primary care initial triage. It's cheap, it relies on a number of widely used tests, and while its high level is prognostic for major adverse liver outcomes and mortality, its indeterminate level is predictive for cardiovascular and overall mortality. I then mention information from a recent Rising Tide podcast episode in which we note that the U.S. may be the only country to include AST so widely in standard testing that it can integrate FIP4 and to ask whether this is an issue advocates can adopt and use to advance disease awareness and screening in their markets. Wayne Eskridge endorses the idea. Robert Mitchell Thain expresses some concern about FIP4 but notes that Fatty Liver Alliance's new charity status may make it and Mike Patel an excellent organization to make the major change. My last question is to ask each advocate what change they can make in their country in the next 12 months that might extend beyond their own borders. They'll have to listen to hear their answers. Patient advocates are, by their nature, disruptors and change agents, so it's not surprising that this conversation moves so fast and includes so many bold statements and shifts in direction. Listen, enjoy, learn, and when you're done, join the dialogue in our LinkedIn discussion group. I made a comment at the end of the episode of Rising Tide that Mike was on that I think actually pertains to several of these things at once, Louise. Uh, first of all, to me, the most important piece of work on FIB4 presented in the last year was a piece that Quentin Anstey and colleagues presented at Easel that suggested that FIB4 is actually prognostic, not merely diagnostic. And that what makes it prognostic is actually that the indeterminate level, the level that's kind of a throwaway on liver disease, is highly prognostic of major cardiovascular events over a 10-year period and all-cause mortality. So it says to me that if, in fact, we have primary care using FIB4 on an annual basis, the way they test for other sequelae in patients with diabetes and prediabetes, that we can pick up an awful lot of what you're talking about, Robert, and treat NAFLD, not as a liver disease, but as a metabolic predictor of all kinds of things that are going to happen. Because the all-cause mortality number takes into account significantly, not just cardiovascular, but also non-hepatic cancers. Because as we know, liver disease is not merely a predictor of HCC, but a predictor of all cancer. Mike, if, I think my comment to you is that if I were a patient advocate right now, that one of the things I'd be doing if I was outside the U.S. is pushing to make sure that every time every patient got a blood panel, they had everything in that they needed to create FIB4s and then to have health systems create medical records that did that. That feels to me like a simple place to start. I don't know that it works for you guys or and that it's aligned with what you're trying to make happen. Mike Bottel. Yeah, Roger. So, so that point specifically about AST in Canada, for most of Canada, if it's written on the request form, on the government form, that a hepatologist requested it for the patient, it's covered. Otherwise, the patient has to pay for it, which is not helpful and needs to change. And I think that that is antiquated based on the old days, not with regard to how it can be used now. But nonetheless, something that I would think a patient advocate could take on, a patient advocacy organization could take on and say, here's something that we can do that deals with the totality of NAFLD in a systemic way that serves the benefits of patients. Because frankly, at that point, patients will know earlier that they've got a problem. Wayne Eskridge. That's absolutely right, Roger. We've advocated that for several years, and I was really pleased by Anstey's uh, report. We're starting to see that happen. The fact that it doesn't happen 
I mean, we've got the evidence and, and we know how it plays. It ought to be implemented. It ought to be there now. I, I am absolutely beside myself sometimes that simple things like that are not made available and, and, and become just a routine for primary care. So I was a little harsh in my comments a little earlier, Roger, I think. You know, there's absolute heroes in our book. Uh, Ken Cousy and people like that are absolutely spectacular advocates for patients, and we really appreciate them. But the slow adoption of things that really we all know work is something that just drives us crazy. With with good reason, Robert. Robert Mitchell Fain. Driving us crazy or taking time? Well, no, actually more about the reaction to the idea that one of the things to hit it, to press on is FIB4 is a standard in the uh, and everybody having the test necessary to do it for, for all the per- reasons that we've been talking about. Yeah. So funnily enough, I'm not entirely comfortable with FIB4 as a tool. I know it's cheap, but I'm not convinced it finds the right people or rules out the right people in a way that's helpful to their journey. And I don't fully understand the, the process and some of the stats, so I'm probably not the strongest voice in terms of, of FIB4 and its usage. You know, if we can find a really simple tool that, that triages in a way that gives patients that control, then yes. And if FIB4 is that tool, then, you know, we roll with it. The issues in Canada are different from the issues in the US that are different from the issues in the UK. But I think there are common problems that we all need to face. It takes one country to lead by example, and then that will produce the data. And we just need the first one to do that. And I would hate to put pressure on another patient advocate. I think that's disrespectful. But if I was running an organization and just become a brand new charity, then I think I would, no. Um, so the viewers should know that four of us are laughing and Mike is looking at him like, what the heck did you just do? So I think collectively we can make a huge noise about this. We, we find out who's going to be heard in the most constructive way first. But I, I think that there's huge potential here. If we could just make one change in one country, the data that that would produce would be enough to start the domino effect. So we're well past the bottom of the hour, which is where we usually cut these conversations off. But this has been so fascinating. I just haven't wanted to do that. Kind of have to do that eventually, like now. So as a last question, and this wasn't the one on the outline either, but we walked away from the outline a long time ago, frankly, which is great. Robert just said each country can make one change that would have huge impact globally. You guys are from three different, you, you gents are from three different countries. What's the change you can envision making in your country in the next year that might have impact beyond your own borders? And if a year is too short, Wayne, then go for three, okay? I appreciate Robert's comments about FIB4 because it's not an ideal test. It is a, a much better than nothing, which is what we have now. If I had a fiat a king for a day, I would have every patient over 20 start tracking their FIB4, you know, just as part of their routine chemistries. And we would learn very soon how to manage these diseases better. Okay, that's great. Um, Mike or Robert? Second to the AST discussion we just had, if there was a way to have primary care physicians look at the charts before the patients come in and recognize that they are pre-diabetic or diabetic, you know, type 2, that they're obese, that they have high cholesterol, that they absolutely should screen them in whatever way they want to screen them for fatty liver disease. Primary care is definitely one of our targets to to see if we can make a difference in that area. So does that... Okay. Um, save the thought for how to do that for another day. Robert? So nationally, I would just like to see much, much better collaboration and partnership between the, the, the patient advocacy and support groups and the, the NHS and, and everything that they provide. Internationally, I would love to see the nomenclature issue put to bed, one way or other, because we have immense minds in the field of NAFLD. Many of those immense minds are talking about what we call this condition. And I would love to see those immense minds 
minds much more focused on how we treat, how we change a paradigm for patients that are affected by this condition instead. So that's the one thing I would love to see. I only had that conversation with three of those immense minds in the half an hour after the session in Dublin ended, where they all expressed frustration. Why, when you get so many smart people in a room, are we spending so much time on this issue? Whatever the answer is, I couldn't agree with you more. Louise Campbell. The nomiculture is an interesting one, isn't it? Because it was originally driven by patients to make the name change. And I understand the frustration. And there are patient organisations like yourself who don't necessarily want the name change. And I think Donna's been quoted as saying, if it becomes an academic exercise, we just want to be cared for. So I, I, I do understand the frustration. But somebody drove that request initially. And I remember Stephen, a long time ago when it first came up, they didn't want to get involved. They didn't think it was going to go anywhere. And look where we are now. So where the stone will stop, I don't know. But I think we do have to coordinate. The bigger it gets globally, sometimes that's more difficult a top-down approach. We like to bring in guidelines. We like to put it top-down. But I, for the first time, sat in a different environment last week and watched people who, and just a mechanism that won't necessarily respond to the top-down approach because they don't see it as their population. That was something I found extremely interesting as to how we look at it from a different way. And primary care is a totally different beast and animal, and they do an awful lot. And I'm sure most primary physicians would say they know their patients very well before they come in to the room. <laughs> Michael, <laughs> they might not know me because whenever they say, who are you? But hey. Yeah, Louise, that's a fourth quadrant problem. They don't know what they don't know and they don't look where they don't look. And I think Mike's point is more about where should they look and what will they learn than it is about if we show them where to look, they'll see what they see. I, I get that. So first of all, I want to thank everybody. I think this has been one of the most interesting episodes we've ever done in that when folks in different communities listen, they will hear a lot of things they've not heard before and didn't expect to hear, which in and of itself, I think is worth the price of admission. And I think some of you, some of you, some of the specific perspectives also were really fantastic. And now, back to Roger. We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, please send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. We'll be back next week with our first look at next month's The Liver Meeting, the annual AASLD conference. Until then, stay safe, surf on, and we look forward to seeing you on the podcast. Bye-bye now.